Greetings, beautiful people. We are one week away from the launch of season three. And as per usual, as I've done for the last couple of weeks, I'm going to be bringing you a classic episode of DPS today. This one's really great. It features an interview I did about a year and a half ago with Adoner Usmani. Adoner wrote a piece with Connor Kilpatrick that was quite controversial, but it was also instrumental in laying some of the foundations for later episodes that I would air over the course of the past year and a half or thereabouts. Adoner and his co-author, Connor Kilpatrick, argued that the Russian Revolution should not be held up as the supreme test case of all socialist movements, revolutions, and so on for all time and forevermore. This was highly controversial about a year and a half ago, as the socialist left was still coming out of its marginality, its infancy stage, if you will. A lot of the people had just recently taken up Marxism within the past year or so, and they were still going through the, I remember my first beer stage of Marxism, where they saw this vulgar, uh, abstract model of Leninism as the only way to proceed to socialist transition. And I'm happy to say that I think that we're really transitioning away from that silliness across the United States. I think the, uh, the, the socialist movement is cohering in the kind of direction that Adoner and I laid out from this interview a year and a half ago. So I'm not always right, but when I am, oh God, it feels good. It feels good to be right every now and then. In this day and age of politics, you know, a lot of things come out of the blue and they catch you completely off guard. But hey, when you're on to something, <laughs> might as well celebrate because I'm going to be wrong about something tomorrow and the day after that. Anyway, this interview has aged exceptionally well. I think you guys are going to enjoy listening to this again or for the first time, whatever the case may be. Really looking forward to dropping season three on you guys. I've got a number of great guests lined up that you are really going to enjoy. Cedric Johnson is going to be kicking things off for episode one of season three. We're going to be talking about the exchange he has had in the pages of New Politics and Jacobin Magazine most specifically, Cedric and I are going to be talking about his latest piece for Jackman called What Black Life Actually Looks Like. And it's a really compelling anti-essentialist case for how we deal with issues of race and class. And longtime listeners of DPS are really going to like that one. I'm looking forward to bringing it to you. In addition, the first YouTube video is going to be launching as well. That one is called Introduction to Democratic Socialism. Uh, for all of the hot air and the politics that's bloviated on YouTube, there is astonishingly little introduction, intro, introductionary, intro, intro, introductionist. There's, there's astonishingly little in material for beginners, for Marxists out there. And I wanted to fill that gap. And uh, this video series is going to do that. So week after week, we're going to break down the fundamental principles, history, strategies, theories, controversies, debates, all that good stuff of democratic socialism for a lay and advanced audience alike. I think everybody will get something from this vlog series. So everybody look out for that. I'm nervous as hell about it. Uh, making the jump to video kind of feels like going outside without any pants on. It's a very, uh, you feel very exposed. I'll put it like that. So you guys go easy on me. And you know, whether you like the video or not, you know, send me, send me a nice message. Just flatter the hell out of me. I'm fragile. I need it. Anyway, <laughs> all right, guys, enjoy this classic episode. Patrons, we've got a B-side coming your way later this week. I talked to Bhaskar Sankara about his latest book, The Socialist Manifesto. You guys are really going to enjoy that. If you're not a patron, you'll miss out. 
Head to patreon.com slash deadpundits and support the New Left Agenda. You'll get access to this B-side this week, as well as all of our other B-sides from DPS past and future, I suppose. B-sides will be coming out with greater frequency going into Season 3. So everybody, check that out. Enough out of me. Enjoy this classic episode of DPS. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. Joining me on the program is Adoner Usmani. Adoner is a postdoctoral fellow of international and public affairs at the Watson Institute. But more importantly for our purposes today, he has authored two pieces. Uh, one is in Jacobin Magazine, the other is in Catalyst Journal. The first one concerns us here. He co-authored that with Connor Kilpatrick. It's called The New Communists. Uh, they argue it's 2017. It's probably time to stop worrying about the questions of 1917 and the Russian Revolution. So this is a real uh, pointed polemic at the way that some uh, sects of the far left obsess about the Russian Revolution. They have a very inward focus when it comes to litigating uh, the questions of the socialist movement. Whereas, you know, maybe we should have an outward looking focus, right? We should have a, a outward facing cadre. We should be obsessed with building socialism for regular ass people and engaging in mass politics. So this in many ways is a sequel to the episode that I had last week with Amber Ali Frost and Angela Nagel. But we're going to get into the historical and political nitty gritty. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. I had a lot of fun talking to a Donner. I think we reached some really important conclusions. And uh, Dead Pundit Society is uh, focused on socialism for regular ass people and building a coherent political agenda. And this episode is no different. There will be a B-side that's going to be landing in the next few days. I'll have that out by the end of the weekend. Available for members of the Dead Pundit Society. So if you are not a patron... Head on over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe today to get access to that B-side and all the other B-sides. Adonner and I are going to be talking about his piece that came out in Catalyst Journal. It's called Did Liberals Give Us Mass Incarceration? It's a review essay of some of the recent uh, arguments and literature that's come out around mass incarceration. We talk about familiar uh, figures such as Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow, and uh, many others. Uh, mass incarceration, prison abolition, and all the rest of it are really hot topics on the table right now for the socialist movement. So you're not going to want to miss that. Head on over to patreon.com and smash that subscribe button. So we've got a good uh, interview coming up for you folks. I'm going to keep this intro short and sweet, and we'll get right to it. Find me on Twitter at deadpundits. Go on Facebook, search for the Dead Pundit Society, and find the page. Like it, follow it. You'll get all of the updates there. And uh, yeah, that's it. Without further ado, here's my interview with Adoner Usmani. Enjoy. Es geht durch die Welt ein Geflüster. Arbeiter, hörst du es nicht? Das sind die Stimmen der Kriegsminister. Arbeiter, hörst du sie nicht? Es flüstern die Kohle- und Stahlproduzenten. 
Es flüstert die chemische Kriegsproduktion. Es flüstert von allen Kontinenten. Mobilmachung gegen die Sowjetunion. Joining me on the line is Adana Guzmani. Just as a refresher, Adana is a postdoctoral fellow of international public affairs at the Watson Institute. And he's written two pieces we're going to be discussing today. The first one was co-authored with Connor Kilpatrick. It's in the latest issue of Jacobin Magazine. It's called The New Communists. The second one is in Catalyst Journal. It's called Did Liberals Give Us Mass Incarceration? We're going to be talking about both. Adoner, how are you doing today, man? Very good. Thanks for having me. These pieces may not be obviously related uh, to some of my listeners, uh, given you know that many of them have not maybe read both of them. But there are some ties that really thread them together in a really fascinating and important way, I think, that I wanted to bring you on the show to talk about. So let's let's start with the new communist piece. Uh, along with Connor Kilpatrick, you wrote that uh, to to kind of commemorate and assess the legacy of the 1917 Russian Revolution. Most folks will know by now we're just get, we're just coming past uh, the 100 year uh, milestone anniversary there of that. In China Mieville wrote a really uh, you know interesting important book called October to commemorate that question. There have been many think pieces both from the mainstream and the far left about that. So, Adner, what was it about this particular anniversary that made you feel like you had something, you know, interesting and important to say in the midst of all of that uh, kind of deluge of commemoration? Well, I come from a tradition, a political tradition in which the Russian Revolution always loomed really large. I mean, that was very much an integral part of my political formation when I first got to grad school, I remember the very first thing I did was take advantage of the library and by taking out four or five books on the Russian Revolution, because that was my that was my jam way back when. But I think as, you know, Connor and I were talking over the summer and thinking about the anniversary and the anniversary issue, it occurred to both of us that it's not really clear that there are any significant lessons for leftists to learn from 1917. Or to put it another way, there are no real positive lessons to learn. There might be maybe very many negative lessons for us to learn from the example of the Bolsheviks, but it's not clear that there are any real positive affirmative lessons to learn. I mean, I might, you know, might temper that argument a little bit, but in general, that was our reaction. That was our reflection in our discussions. And so that's really what we wrote the piece to try and convey, to, to, to make the argument that, you know, there's no question that the, question, the, the key question for socialists in the 20th century was the Bolshevik Revolution and how to relate to it in some critical way. But today it's 2017 and it's time to move on. That's more or less the argument of the piece. And, you know, I, I would even make that argument a little bit stronger, which is to say that in many ways you can read the history of the left in the 20th century at least the history of the left in the Western world and the advanced capitalist world as moving beyond 1917. I mean, 1917 had its moment, but really the lion's share of left politics for most of the 20th century, I would say, is defined by moving away from the Russian example, precisely because, you know, and this is really the key constitutive point is that the society that we live in looks nothing like Russia in 1917, 1914, whenever you want to start 
your analysis of the revolutionary process. And that that's true for most of the Western left in the 20th century. Right. So I just I have to pause there and just uh, I, I lost, uh, you know, a, a good fraction of my listeners uh, with that. Open. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to note we'll for win people. Him back. We'll win him back, Adam. We'll win him back or, you know, whatever to hell with him. Uh, yeah, I said it. Uh, you know, I just wanted, you know, a lot of my longtime listeners, uh, the folks who tune in week after week, that will not be a shocking statement. But I just wanted, I, you know, we'd be remiss and just kind of glossing over the fact that what you just said there is an incredibly controversial claim on the far left. So let's unpack it. Marxist let's do it. Left, right. Let's, yeah, let's, let's do this. Let's, I, let's make them. Let's convince them. I'm ready. Right. I mean, it's, it's, this isn't so much about, you know, building a bunker and saying, you know, F you, you know, we're right, you're wrong. Yeah, let's, let's, let's have a real debate here. Let's let's take our opponents at their strongest and uh, and try to make this case for why it's it's, it's important for the socialists left to move on uh, in 2018 and beyond. So your piece, I just have to point out here for some of folks out there who probably have never heard of this really important essay. It's very reminiscent when I read your new, uh, new communist piece in Jacobin. Highly reminiscent of an essay written in 1976 by Ralph Miliband called Moving On. And uh, that appeared in the Socialist Register in 1976. It's widely available for free on Marxist.org. I'll post that in the show notes. And it's it's a similar kind of reassessment about kind of like, okay, so where, where do we stand as a Marxist uh, socialist left? What kind of uh, strategies have been pursued in uh, recent history? And, and, and what do we make of those strategies and how do we define ourselves going forward? Uh, you know, and, and, and Ralph Miliband draws some very similar conclusions regarding uh, non-reformist reforms. Um, so clearly this is kind of a, a very, a very kind of bold statement about the, the direction of the left. Tell me a little bit more about, you know, your, your impulse there. So it has more, you know, you're kind of parting ways perhaps with your former fascination with the Russian revolution, it sounds like in some senses. Yeah. So, uh, well, let's, I think we should start with, uh, what I think is the core claim of the piece that Connor and I wrote, which I think is something that I don't think I've read that particular essay by Ralph Milligan, that could be wrong, but I have read something that he co-wrote with Marcel Liebman, which is also a Marxist.org, which, which makes a very similar argument. Mm-hmm. And the core claim, I think, is just that we, again, we live in a society that's very different from the society that the Bolsheviks lived in and did politics in, in the, the early 1900s. And so, you know, one way of, there, there are many dimensions to that claim. One way of, one simple way of taking a first cut into that claim is to think of their genius slogan on the eve of the revolution land, peace, bread. I can never remember the order, bread, peace, land, land, peace, bread, whatever it is. But each one of those, each one of those arguments or each one of the political programs represented by the, the three words in that slogan was, I think, uniquely adapted to Russian conditions at the time, but really has very little to do, very, very little to teach us about the society that we live in today. So land, obviously, it's about the agrarian question. It's about redistributing land to peasants. We don't. We live in a society in which two percent of the labor force live works in agriculture, and you know, the agrarian question. Even most of the world, the agrarian question is over. It's been solved. I mean, solved in a quote-unquote sense by capitalism. Today, 
that's you know that that's not a serious political issue anymore in most of the world, or at least in most of the advanced world where most of us do politics. I mean, I I, I would relax that claim for parts of the global south. There's no question. Sure. But for most of us, it's not it's not part of our political horizons. So let's spell that out for people who aren't necessarily uh, Russian Revolution nerds. I don't want to presume that my audience sure. is, is in that category, although many will be, and that's great. That's fine. Uh, however, when you say land, there are a remarkably large uh, number of uh, peasants in Russia at that time. So what what, what were the what were the kind of political calculations there? It seems to me that 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 you know utilizing land in that slogan was a way of bringing the peasant class on on board. Uh, what was otherwise a uh, Soviet-led industrial uh, movement, perhaps, would you say? Yeah, I think I would agree with that assessment. I mean, there's a lot of work sort of from non-left-wing historians in sociology and in history, which argues that the Russian Revolution was a peasant revolution, fundamentally. You know, I mean, it was uh, the countryside was in revolt. And while the Bolsheviks predominantly had, as you were saying, an industrial working class, urban base, they had to appeal to the rest of the country that was in revolt for support and for, um, and they had to, they had to find a way of appealing to that population. And the way that they appealed to them was by integrating their central constitutive demand into their political program, which I think in the abstract, that's the sort of thing that we need to do in our politics. But what I suppose I'm saying is that the actual concrete thing that they were arguing has nothing to teach us today about how to do politics in 2017 in most of the world. Right, right. So so context and specificity is everything. Yeah, case, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There. So then uh, the peace, land and bread, we've talked about land. Uh, how does peace figure in there? Because that seems to be uh, a, tr- a tremendously important aspect of the Russian Revolution's uh, uh, success uh, across the broad society. Yeah. So, I mean, this th- this this sort of did surprise me when I was looking at some of the online reaction to our piece. Not that I would encourage anyone to do that, <laughs> but <laughs> I was, I, I, I mean, so one of the things that we say sort of offhand in the piece is that the Bolsheviks, while the Bolsheviks returned to a society in which the ongoing world war was an enormous issue, you know, many, many people died. Many military age males died in that war. And it was a horrific, like 20 million uh, dead on the Russian side. If that's if something like that. Is that true? Wow. Yeah. Well, so, wait, that might be the second world war. That's the second world war. I think, right? That's the second world war. Possibly. Okay. I'll, Possibly. I'll, I'll look up that look statistic. Up. Yeah. I'll look it up. But I've in any case, these things over yeah. Time. In any case, you're, you're absolutely right in, in, in your, in the sentiment, which is that obviously Russia was convulsed by the war. But and then we said in the piece, you know, one thing that I one thing that we noted was that today we live in the most peaceful period in world history. And people went nuts, it seemed to me, at that claim. Now, that's not at all to say that the world that we live in is peaceful, per se. That's not the argument that we were trying to make. It's just that we live in a much more peaceful world in which war between the great powers or war, at least of the magnitude and of the severity that greeted the you know, Russian society on the eve right. of war, during World War. That's just that that's just not on the cards. 
And it's mechanized slaughter, you might say. I'll look it up. It's 20 million total deaths for World War One. Okay. I, mis- I misspoke. And 21 million wounded. Yeah. So it's a massive number of casualties. I'm sure Russians suffered disproportionately in some in some senses. Uh, in I'm sure, yeah. But it, so just mechanized, uh, industrialized uh, death and maiming going on there in, in World War One, right? Yeah, and so, you know, there there there's a there's a book which i'm hesitant to cite because i'm not a unconditional fan of its author but you know your listeners might want to take a look at it it's this book by steven pinker on the re- the decline in violence over time now you know there are many interpretive issues that i would have with the argument that he offers but the basic facts that he presents in his book i think aren't really up for dispute which is mm-hmm. just that the the probability of a human being dying a violent war-related or otherwise violent death has declined dramatically over the course of the over the course of human history but even over the course of the 20th century so the point is that it, we, we ought we we're not we're not organizing in a context in which you know murderous war leading to imminent rupture and revolution is on the cards at all. And I don't think that should be a controversial claim. I was surprised to learn that that was a controversial claim. Well, let's let's talk about why it's controversial. Now, at this point, a lot of your detractors, at least in terms of that specific claim, litigating that specific claim, would argue that you are uh, the bearer of some kind of Western privilege. Right. Hmm. That, in fact, actually, you know, U.S. and Western imperialism has caused death and destruction and violence on a similar scale. It's just been kind of uh, broadly disseminated throughout the world in places that we don't get to hear about or that we don't have to see reported um, in the news. So that's I just want to let you know, folks know that that's often the rebuttal that's being offered. Uh, and I think there's a kernel of truth in that rebuttal, Adam. I really do, which is mm-hmm. which is just to say that. You know, my weak response to that argument, I'd have a weak response and a strong response. My weak response to that argument would be to say that it's absolutely it's absolutely the case that in the rest of the world, levels of violence and and, and war are much more severe and higher. I don't dispute that at all. But one point of this piece was to it was really addressed to West to, to, to leftists who are doing politics in the advanced capitalist Western world. And so to those people to organize around the probability of to organize around the likelihood of imminent war leading to revolution in the societies in which they live seems to me to be ludicrous on its face. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's just kind of an obfuscation of, of, of the general dynamics that, that led to the Russian Revolution. It's, it's not just, OK, there's broad uh, there's broad violence and, and death and destruction in, in society. It's that it was experienced in a very palpable and direct way by a large number of people inside of specific nation states. Which is just clearly not the way that warfare happens anymore, right? I mean, it's, it is broadly disseminated. It is. It is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and then, and then the you know, there's a general sociological point here, which is that if you are, if you were to look at, if you were to look at, if you were to try and construct a general argument about the conditions leading to revolution and 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 state breakdown, it's almost always the case that those are precipitated by some kind of serious convulsive war of the kind that World War One was, and. Insofar as that kind of a war is not on the cards in the in the advanced world today, I don't think we should be planning for a state collapse and state. You know, uh, we shouldn't be planning a ruptural strategy based on revolutionary overthrow of the state. To me, it just doesn't 
it just doesn't compute. Uh, I said that there was that there was like a there was a weak response to that argument that you had cited the rebuttal. I think there's also a stronger response, but it's not one that I want to spend too much time on. It's just that uh, Stephen Pinker's numbers are not just about the Western world; they're about the decline in violence worldwide, and, and it includes excluding the West. The, that that decline still is true. And so that's not to say, you know, that's not to say that the world is not a terrible, violent place and that imperialism is not an awful thing. But it's to urge, it's to urge leftists and to urge your listeners to take seriously the way in which it's evolved over time and the facts of its evolution, which is just, you know, these are, these are facts. We shouldn't quibble with facts. We should, you know, we should offer our own interpretation of those facts, no doubt. We shouldn't swallow whole hog everything that Steven Pinker says, but we shouldn't quibble with facts. And I find too often leftists are in the business of quibbling with facts to, to, to suit their own political uh, narrative. Right, right. The idea is that that uh, the Russian Revolution provides a certain kind of template and that uh, we should sort of uh, fit modern contemporary reality uh, into that template uh, by any means necessary. Yeah. And so you have to ask yourself, right? I think we all have to ask ourselves, which is why is it that people find that so tempting? Now, if, if, you know, if I, if we're, if Connor and I are right, that the Russian revolution, the model doesn't really have much to offer us. Why is it the case that there is this kind of cottage industry on the left of being attached to the Russian revolution and still using it as a model? And I think that, the answer to that, unfortunately, is that for too many people on the left, what it means to do politics is to do politics amongst other leftists, to try and increase the number of people that come to your intro branch meeting or something like that, right? Rather than rather than doing politics in the wider world, doing politics amongst those people who are not yet leftists. It's more or less, we more or less do politics amongst people who are already politically convinced on, and on, on board, which is not politics. Right, right. I mean, this is this is a really great this is great timing. Um, I wanted to have you on the show for some months or sorry, some weeks, rather, I should say. But I had Amber Ali Frost and Angela Nagel on last week making a somewhat less academic argument, you know, know, historically driven argument, but Hmm. with with very similar impulses in mind. Right. In terms of the importance of the of the contemporary socialist movement developing these outward facing cadres. And so we're getting at some of the kind of like theoretical and historical uh, diversions or digressions, you would say that, that are oftentimes, um, they drive this inward focus. Yeah. I think that's exactly the contrast to draw inward focus versus outward focus. And our job is to be militantly outward focused precisely because of the fact, precisely because of the fact that the left right now is confined to social actors with no social power whatsoever. Right. We know this, we're confined to universities in the main and Students, you know, they're great for many things, but they're not they're not levers for overthrowing society or overturning society and winning serious reforms. That's not that's not where we need to be. And we all I think to to the credit of most leftists, I think people do recognize that, you know, even people who would disagree with everything I've said, I think would agree that there is a problem in 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 the social composition of the left. I don't think that's in dispute. But I think that what they don't recognize is that social composition seeps into way in, into the way that they think about politics, which is a real real tragedy. So I, I, I can I say one more thing. I think we should tie up tie up the thread. So we did land, we did peace. I think we should yeah, do bread. bread. 
Sure. I was, I was going to move there. You read my mind because bread to me is the most interesting element there. I think it's, it's the one that has the most resonance with today, potentially, if we sort of wield it in the right direction. I might, would you agree with that? What's your assessment of the bread? I think I would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's, let's see if we agree on the exact specifics. The, the point that I would make is that, you know, I'm not, this is not my field. I'm not an academic of revolutions or anything like this, but it seems to me that one of the, other than war, one of the best predictors of revolutionary upheaval is probably the desperation that people feel and the, the things that they're willing to sacrifice to improve their lot. Now, I think we have to wrestle with the basic fact that standards of living have improved massively over the 20th century. That's not to be an apologist for capitalism. I'm a socialist to my bone. There's no question about that. But we have to recognize the fact that Russia in 1917 was a society that resembles some of the most underdeveloped societies in the world today, not the United States in 2017. Completely different world. And so we live in a society in which the state partly for these reasons, has enormous legitimacy amongst the population. This is a point that Vivek Chiver made quite well in his essay in the same issue as well. So I, I think that it's not to say, as you were implying, it's not to say that bread shouldn't be a part of our demands. Of course, of course, really what we're, you know, what defines us as leftists is the demand for more egalitarian distribution of bread of, of basic resources, of the basic things that people need to survive. But I don't think that we should, I don't think that that we should allow that fact to obscure the enormous differences in this dimension between Russia in 1917 and the U.S. today. And all that is to say that I just, I, I just think that that, that that is another reason that it's, it seems pretty clear to me revolution is just off the cards in, in, in advanced societies that have, you know, established states that in general have the highest standards of living in world history and certainly higher standards of living than any society that has ever experienced the revolution. It's just sociologically we can't expect revolution and we shouldn't orient our politics to revolution. We should orient our politics to, to elsewhere. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. I think I want to that that I mean, I totally agree with that. But you and I have both sort of uh, had some flirtation with the revolutionary socialist left. Sure. And uh, for those who flirtation. More, more, more than flirtation, perhaps for <laughs> both of us. There was uh, there was some intercourse, perhaps, on my part, uh, you might say. Uh, so for those who, who, who are who are uh, delightfully oblivious to what you just said there. I want to paint a little picture about what it's like to walk into a meeting uh, of, of revolutionary socialists. In many, many instances, the educational component is, is, is almost entirely centered around this notion of, first of all, relaying the, the history and the experience of revolutions and so-called revolutions, I might say, of the past, and then sort of like parsing out the, quote, lessons Right. They love to talk about lessons sure. uh, because the idea, as you and Connor write in your piece, is that we'll just do it better next time. 
And the next time is also a kind of a, it's, it's an assumption, but it's also something that they really try to sell very hard in terms of like next time being that revolution is still on the table, that societies can shift very quickly, that even the police and the military can switch sides right. and that something like dual power is still the only path uh, towards uh, you know, uh, social change, uh, in a, in a really robust way. Um, of course you, you and Connor's, uh, piece really just <laughs> takes a lot of that stuff on, uh, head on. Do you have anything to say about the, the lessons piece? Cause I think that's really important here, uh, in the way in which revolutionary socialists constantly want to talk about the lessons and draw out the lessons as though next time, uh, we could do it better if there, if there, if there would be a next time. I think that the point that we try and make in this piece is that too often our analyses of past revolutionary experiences have been extremely glib. The analysis is basically that the reason that this revolution failed was because people weren't quite, not people actually, leaders of that revolution either betrayed the revolution, maybe they hadn't read up on their Trotsky enough or something like that, right? And it seems pretty clear to me that that is that might be a reasonable explanation of a single revolution, but there's something rotten in your theoretical framework if that's your explanation for every single failed revolution of the 20th century. Right? How, how could it be the case that in every single case, in every single case, the leadership betrayed the masses. You need a, if it's the case that in every single case that has happened, you need something a little bit more systematic. You need a systematic explanation of the betrayal of masses by leaders. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the case, in fact, that, you know, something else explains the failures of these revolutions and not the volitional evil deeds of its leaders. And that's sort of the piece, I think, we kind of make that point in this piece, which is just to say, you know, well, I think that, I think what we say in this piece is that this is in some ways our understanding, the silly understanding we have of the reasons that the Russian Revolution failed, which is that the reason that the Russian Revolution failed is, is that, it, you know, the, the, either the Stalinist counter-revolution or some sort of, yeah, well, I suppose that depending on your political tradition, the the conniving evil work of a small cabal of people. Mm -hmm. And that is, to me, that's just not a, it's not a good explanation of the reason the Russian revolution failed. The reason that the Russian revolution failed is because it was condemned to happen in a small underdeveloped, uh, not a small, but an underdeveloped country that didn't ever have the resources to, produce the sort of society that these people dreamed that they were going to produce. And they were obviously they were relying on the international revolution and they were relying on the German revolution, whatever else. But it's just the, the, the explanation that it was the individual evil deeds of, of a cabal of leaders, I think is, is really is very, very weak. And that ends up being the explanation for every failure on the right. Right, right. Well, the Dead Punnett Society takes that that uh, limitation very seriously. We had um, the uh, our state theory series 
um, labor in the capitalist state. I think, uh, you know, that the kind of neo-Marxian state theory that we try to develop there takes right. very seriously the kind of contradictions of a, of a capitalist state or any state uh, for that matter, wherein we can add some complexity to this kind of uh, what I might call nowadays it, it comes out as the capitulation thesis. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think we saw that in Greece. Where I don't, you know, is Syriza a caricature of itself uh, today, of its former self today? Yes. Uh, did did Syriza fail to, you know, accomplish what it set out? Certainly. Uh, were there mistakes made? Yes. However, just sort of flattening that experience into a capitulation by the the sellouts at the at the top of the party, Alexei Tsipras or whomever. Uh, really doesn't give us a, a complete enough picture about what went wrong so that we can do better next time. So if you – hell. So yeah, if you're going to talk about lessons, if you want to talk about lessons, uh, there's nothing wrong with deriving lessons. It's just that I don't think this just-so narrative that you've, you, you rightly critique here – gives us the right ones such that say if a Jeremy Corbyn Labor Party uh, enters power in the next 12 months and they come up against uh, the the power of global capital – Right. In their efforts to reform uh, the welfare state and all the rest of it. Uh, you know, I don't know. Are we going to say five years on that Jeremy Corbyn capitulated? Are we going to trash him and, and blame him for all of the failures of the labor government should they fail? Um, it's just not a very it's not it's just it's just not enough. And, and longtime listeners of the Dead Punnett Society will, will have many of those arguments under the belt quite well. So yeah. I really do appreciate this this argument. I mean, and, and you know, to to. Well, I guess I guess this is something. This is a point that you, that you just made, but I would reiterate because it's a point that we also made in the piece is that this is the, the the left is right. The far left is absolutely right to have an analysis of the failures of social democracy, but that analysis should reference things that are more deep rooted and structural than simply, as you were saying, the capitulation of certain leaders. Because if it is just the capitulation of certain leaders, it presents the left with an enormous puzzle that it can't resolve, which is why did these leaders all capitulate in different places, in different times, in different contexts? And that that's just not something that can be answered with simultaneous capitulation of all leaders ever. There has to be something deeper going on. And that's exactly where we need to go, as you were saying. We need to understand the deeper reasons that social democracy and its reformist variant failed. And I think to take it back to the analysis of the Russian Revolution and of other revolutions, you know, to try and understand why those revolutions failed in a deeper way, I think, requires you to take a serious look at the structural context in which those revolutions were being made. And once you've seen that with clear eyes, then you also hopefully will see the dissimilarities between that structural context and the structural context in which we live today. Well said. Very well said. I'm glad that you were pointed to the structural features of of the contradictions faced by uh, uprisings and revol- and would be revolutionary movements because it seems to me that what has been lost I think since the decline of you know quote unquote structuralism coming out of the 1970s is this over dependency on 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 uh, so called agency and so we're looking at the the kind of will of the leaders do they have the right will do they have the stones you know i think you think a lot a lot a lot of these uh more trotskyist i would say inflected 
understandings of the failures of past political movements all boils down to, well, you know, they would have gone all the way, but they just didn't have the stomach for it. Sure, sure. Absolutely. I mean, there's a there's a book that literally makes this argument, I think, titled Revolutionary Rehearsals. That's exactly the one I had in mind. Yeah, yeah that, that's canon in the, right. for, exactly. on the ISO, which is kind of the bearer of the, this kind of like Trotskyite, uh, Trotskyist sort of formulation. And, and for those out there in my audience who may be ISO or ISO affiliated, I mean, don't take this. I mean, this isn't shots fired. You know, we're not we're not attack. This isn't a, an attack in any sense. I think it's a challenge. It's a. It's a, it's a challenge in a, in a comradely spirit to to sharpen your arguments. And if you do actually believe that revolution is still on the table, uh, you know, to, to, to go beyond this idea that uh, there's a certain kind of revolutionary will that one needs to have that can overcome the immense contradictions of of the capitalist state that, that you know, thinkers as early as like Antonio Gramsci laid out in his distinction uh, between the so-called East and West, uh, wherein the West has a very well-developed state. It's surrounded by a moat. It's a castle that's surrounded <laughs> by a moat, if you will, that is civil society, and that the state is not just a fortress that can be stormed by force, as uh, as the Russian state was uh, mm-hmm. leading up to the Russian Revolution. And uh, those who listen to my interview with uh, Raphael Kachaturian on uh, state theory and neo-Marx and state theory will, will be more familiar there. If you missed it, go back and check that out. But uh, just to, just to put a kind of fine point on the point that we're both making, I think the way to think about this is that there are structural facts in you know there's structural facts about the the society in which most of your listeners in in which we live today that mean that based on our understanding, based on the experiences of other societies over the course of the 20th century, in other words, if we kind of assimilate all the data that we have from history over the last hundred years, the fact that we live in a relatively very, very rich society, the fact that we live in a society in which there are no peasants, there is no agrarian question. The fact that we live in a society that that hasn't lost many of its military age men to slaughter, all of these three things, I think, should lead us to expect that the probability of revolution is not very, very uh, high at all. In fact, it's infinitesimally small. Now, one possible rejoinder to that argument is that there are structural facts, and then there are sort of the orientation of people in that society. So in other words, what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there are two facts that are kind of relevant to understand when you're trying to think of what a good political strategy would be. One of those facts is the, the, these sort of structural features of the society in which you live. And the other is sort of the common sense of the people in the society in which you live. And I think it's not just the first set of facts, the structural facts that should encourage in us a different orientation to social change than the one that we would get from the Bolsheviks. But it's also the fact that, you know, we live in a society in which the people who are attracted to the Soviet example and to the idea of revolution are a very, very small proportion of the population. And I really get irritated at the fact that too often what being a leftist means, I suppose is a point that we kind of already made, but too often what being a leftist means is doing politics in that milieu. It's the inward looking thing that 
you were saying your previous guests were talking about as well. And really what politics has to mean, if it means anything, is it's it's about doing politics in the population that's not yet woke. It's not about doing politi- politics amongst people who are already woke in your sense of the word, right? Yeah, socialism for regular-ass people is the way I phrase Amen. it. I get a lot of shit for it, but hey, yeah, uh, it's socialism for normies. Uh, socialism for for you know uh, non political nerds, whatever you want to call it, and, and what I mean by that, let's be really clear about what you just said, and uh, please elaborate on this after I sort of offer my version. Sure, it's it's not it's not because a lot of people will come at me and say, well, now listen, Adam and Adner, I mean, come on, for God's sakes, you guys aren't normies. You guys aren't regular ass people. You guys are obsessive, uh, you know, politically minded academics, even for God's sakes. We're like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the, the ultimate sin you know, <laughs> in that respect. <laughs> we're the ultimate offenders. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what kind of policies that, 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 that would appeal to people ultimately, right? That would appeal to normal ass, regular ass people or whatever, however you want to phrase it, right? Um, so, so, so spell that out for us in terms of, because this is where oftentimes your detractors will, your detractors will latch onto you and accuse you of just being shills for the Democrats, of just simply being this kind of soft social democratic, uh, Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. And that you're taking real revolution off the table, uh, so to speak, by arguing for this kind of outward uh, looking uh, trajectory. What's your response there? I think that the way that we put it at the the end of the piece is the way that I would would make this argument, which is to say that it's not the argument is not really is not at all. Actually, that the, the, the task of a leftist is simply to regurgitate what what you're calling regular ass people already think that's that's not what the task of a leftist is i agree the task of a leftist is to channel those things that people do believe and do want towards a transformative social program so i think the way that we put it is you know your task is to plant one foot in the world as you see it and one foot in the world as you want it to be. And the role of an activist, again, is to sort of, is to, is to latch on to those things that people have intuitions or about, or have expressed support for, have opinions about, you know, and, and take those things and find their transformative potential and use those as the plank to change society use those as the as the plot so you know let's talk concretely about what that would look like in america in 2017 so to to address your point concretely uh you sum up the piece uh, you and connor sum up the piece uh as so so you write for the bolsheviks uh peace land and bread uh means for us medicare for all and you're right, that's a good place to start. Uh, so is green jobs for all. Uh, the, the two of you write, each of these strikes at the core of the socialist dream, a radically more equal distribution of work, wealth, and leisure. These are horizons everyone can see and most desperately want to reach. So the idea is not that you know socialism for regular-ass people means tailing people into their racist enclaves right. or whatever. I mean, that's absurd. Exactly. I think that's, that's the assumption, right? The assumption, and I think Jacobin gets this kind of um, this invective thrown at it quite often is the assumption that if you if if you want to appeal to the masses, that you necessarily have to follow the masses into these 
uh, racist and xenophobic, uh, you know, corners that they're they're pulled into by various elements of the of the ruling class, you know, due to scarcity and austerity and labor market competition and, right. and all the rest of it. But that's just absurd, right? I think you you can do both, right? Uh, you can provide a better lead that that uh, that yeah entices people in these ways. So expand on that. You talk about Medicare for all. You talk about green jobs for all. What's the significance of these movements for you? In my opinion, the way to think about it is that uh, the platform that we should strive for is a platform that ticks two kinds of boxes. One box is that it has to be something that at some level you think there's mass support for in the society in which you're living or there's significant support for. Now, that doesn't mean that people are polled and they say they support single payer health care. I don't I haven't really looked at the polls. I do know that there is significant support for things that would look like that. But, you know, that there's, it's about 60 percent universal Medicare. Well, there you go. That's 60%, incredible. 60 percent. Uh, yeah. But you, whether or not it was 60% or 40%, you know that there's seething anger in this country at the state of American healthcare, the state of the American healthcare system. And so that's something that you know you can tap because people are extremely angry about it as they ought to be. And then that's the first box, that it has to be something that appeals to people already. The second box, I think, is that well, sorry, just to make clear, appeals to people already without necessarily exhausting what people believe. It can be, you know, it can be a step ahead, as we were saying, of where people are. Your goal is to be one step ahead, but not 25 steps ahead the way that most of the far left is. But then I think the other box that it has to check is it has to be something that with a contentious class struggle oriented strategy, given the balance of forces that are disposable that you that are at our disposal that you feel that you can win that that you feel that is achievable in the near future you know this is the idea about these being horizons that we, not just not just horizons that we can see but also the horizons that we can touch in some near future and medicare for all definitely ticks that box it's something that you can imagine you know after bernie's support for it and advocacy for it and after some other democratic politicians have come out in support of it it's something that you believe that that i think we should believe that we can win in this society and that i would contrast to other sorts of things that have grabbed the left's attention in recent years like or in recent let's say the recent in the recent past debates that we've had about say prison abolition or police abolition you know even if they tap some kind of nascent discontent that people have with the carceral state and with police, they're not things that any capitalist society in world history has ever done. And there's no chance that the United States carceral capital of the world will be the first to do those things. And so what we really need is we need something that ticks both the boxes of being potentially popular and also achievable, I think. And that's something that I think Medicare for all, green jobs for all, those are those are sorts of campaigns that I can imagine being successful in my lifetime. But and, and I want to be clear about this and correct me if you, if, if you think I'm off base here, but I think this is complimentary to what you're saying. A lot of folks might accuse you at that point in time and saying and, and not they might interpret what you said as not prioritizing prison abolition because maybe you don't think it's as important. But I think your argument is is more crucially saying that 
that aim necessarily cannot achieve what it sets out. It can't win. It's not just a matter of trying harder or having the right sort of revolutionary will or resolve as an activist. It's that structurally the way that capitalism and global imperialism is is sort of uh, oriented right now. It's fundamentally cannot win on the terms uh, uh, on, on which it, it, it's it's argued and, and currently being being pursued. I think that seems that strikes me as the most essential point there. So it's not a, it's a false choice in that sense. I think it is is really what underlies uh, the argument of, of this piece that's so fascinating to me. It's exactly right. I mean, I, I, it's inconceivable to me that that either of these things could win. And then if 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 you accept so one potential rejoinder is that it's not inconceivable and that it could win. So that's a that's a argument that those people who the people who support that position ought to make. That's one possible rejoinder. I, I don't buy it, but I'd like to see it in print. But the other the the other the, if if you accept you know if if your listeners accept the argument that it's inconceivable in the short term, then we have to ask or in the medium term, then we have to ask, why is it that people continue to cling to it? And I think in order to understand that, we return to the things that you were already saying earlier and that you, you said that your previous guests have said, which is that it's about virtue signaling. It's about showing that you are of a curtain, you're a certain kind of leftist with certain kinds of commitments. And I just don't think that's politics. I think that's, you know, that's, that's what, that, that's that's not what it means to be a leftist. What it means to be a leftist is to change the world. It's, what it, it does not mean, you know, to, to high five your friends in a small room. Right. It, it seems to me that the, 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 it's not political. It's it's social, right? Exactly. It's the social it's not, dynamics exactly. of that's group exactly formation. Right. I mean, you being exactly having right. a sociological background, you will have at least uh, a, a, probably a far more, uh, far better uh, grasp of, say, the Chicago school, for example. And, and these types of folks, yeah, sure. I mean, they're very soft on capitalism. They don't countenance uh, for class uh, hardly at all. Uh, at best, they're kind of like liberal do-gooders, you know, but nonetheless, you know, the Chicago School of Sociology has a lot of really important things to say about the dynamics of group formation. And that, and as you as you pointed to, too often times, uh, something like what we call virtue signaling is actually uh, instrumental in group formation, identity formation within groups and status and all the rest of that. And it has very little to do uh, with with politics. I think that's a really important distinction that you raised there. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. So it seems to me that the argument is also very similar to what uh, a former guest of mine, David Bush, uh, argued in, in terms of universal basic income. It's not to say that universal basic income, you know, if we could just sort of snap our fingers and will it into being wouldn't be a good thing in some senses, magical, you know, this kind of magical thinking uh, that that goes on on the left. If we could just have kind of have a genie in a bottle, whatever, grant us three wishes. His point is that actually in the kind of struggle that it would take to win a good UBI would ultimately involve the same kind of class struggle that would be involved in winning, say, a socialist society. Um, and that you can't have one without the other and that prison abolition and some of these other sort of more maximalist demands suppose that we could somehow bring into existence revolutionary outcomes without the revolutionary struggle to go along with it. Yeah. I mean, on, on, on UBI in particular, I'd be interested in, in hearing David, David's arguments in more detail. I I mean, I, what would be interesting to me is to, 
is to put David against another David. I, I don't know if you saw that there was another piece in this new issue, Catalyst, I did, I did, yeah. in which was a defense of UBI. And, you know, whether or not one David is right or the other David is right, I think both of them are having the kind of argument and the kind of discussion that the left needs to have, which is both of them are making, you know, both of them are, at least as I understood your summary of David's argument, both of them are committed to the idea that we should be we should be organizing around things that are achievable in this world. And then it becomes an empirical or strategic question about whether or not a particular orientation or a particular program is achievable or not achievable. I think, I think David Kalnitsky from the catalyst issue might disagree with David Bush about what is achievable, but that's the kind of discussion that we need to have is I suppose what I'm trying to say. So it's more important what on, on what register we're having this debate as opposed to the specific, exactly. uh, you know, claims yes. of the debate. Yeah. That's that's uh, just to yeah. clarify. That's David Kalnitsky. The P, the section is called "Debating Basic Income." It's in uh, Volume Three of Catalyst that just came out. Folks uh, should get Catalyst. I make a pitch for this all the time. Not only is Adner's uh, second essay that we're going to discuss in Catalyst Journal, uh, Cedric Johnson had a piece in the, in the opening issue. Nevada Damajumdar was there. It was in the uh, Volume One. Of course, Vivek Chibber, uh, one of the editors uh his piece on class and culture which was fantastic was in volume one so go to catalyst journal go to the website order it people uh they're actually doing student subscriptions for ten dollars a month a year that's like basically giving away <laughs> if you're a student and you have any kind of student affiliation this in- includes i don't know why vivek would do this because he he kind of hates grad students doesn't he <laughs> love hate uh, it's a love hate relationship that that uh, vivek chipper has with grad students but they're going to be giving it away for ten dollars a year so go ahead and get it so i would be remiss in uh not bringing up some of the more potent uh critiques of your the new communist piece by say trotskyite uh, trotskyist sort of adjacent thinkers one is that um the class question is sort of obfuscated in your new communist piece. You and Connor obfuscate away from this class question and you fall into a form of like bourgeois liberalism and that, uh, Lenin was making arguments in, you know, against his, um, against, uh, say ultra leftism, for example, that Lenin's contribution in his ultra leftism and and infantile disorder were geared towards running labor party candidates, not bourgeois party candidates. So the argument there is, yes, you're misusing Lenin's arguments against ultra leftism to encourage people to vote for Democrats as opposed to independent socialist candidates. And people <laughs> like Dan Labatz and Todd Cretion uh, have argued elsewhere that we should be fighting for um, uh, independent and socialist candidates only. So what's your defense of uh, arguing for what are, in essence, uh, the left wing of Democratic Party policies? So uh, if I've understood their arguments correctly, the argument is that the things that we've laid out in this essay necessarily entail uh, working with the Democratic Party or the so-called left wing of the Democratic Party. Is that how you understood their arguments? Well, it's actually very bizarre. If you read your essay, and and this is – I'm glad – this isn't tangential actually. This is very uh, related to – uh, addressing the critics of this piece, which are legion, at least on the far left, which is very marginal. So they're, they're legion on the marginal left. <laughs> terms there. Uh, if, if you read your piece, you and Connor's piece, 
And then you read, uh, say, for example, Todd Cretion in Socialist Worker had a, a rebuttal, a, cri- a criticism of it. It's kind of like a tale of two articles. Because if you read Todd's criticism, or certainly if you read Louis Proyek's criticism, I wouldn't recommend folks do that, by the way. <laughs> I think Louis's a crank. <laughs> uh, it's a tale of two articles. And what I mean by that is that what the piece that they described, that the, the piece that you allegedly wrote – has very little similarities to the piece that you actually wrote. Uh, they sort of explain, you know, they, they describe your piece as, as kind of just being this kind of Democratic Party propaganda. It's all just Bernie Sanders drivel. Uh, you know, it's kind of like a quasi left wing populism. It doesn't talk. It doesn't care about class. It, uh, you know, spits all over the Russian revolution. Um, you, uh, you, you drop a, a caricature of Lenin that has no relationship to the real Lenin. And then you read your piece and it's actually very like historically grounded. It, 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 it makes very little mention of say Bernie Sanders, for example, save for the very, very last paragraph or two. So it so you know it, it's kind of difficult to assess the the real claims of your detractors because they don't necessarily reproduce your argument with with any success I would say there's a lot of projection that's going on there. Yeah, well so the reason the reason I asked that is because the, one of the things that we say pretty explicitly in the piece is that actually there's some striking similarities to us between reformist social democracy and the far left, which is to say that both reformist social democracy and the far left can be characterized by their aversion to mass politics. Reformist social democracy, at least one feature of its demise and its decline was that it became obsessed with its own position in the state and its own sort of you know, the, the credibility that it acquired mm-hmm. upon conquering bourgeois politics. And so class struggle, mass struggle sort of fell by the wayside. And you don't need to have a volitional account of that to note that that was true. Right. I mean, it, it, it's it's as we were saying earlier, much more than just a capitulation, but it's still in its final state. That's really what it was characterized by, by an aversion to mass politics. And that, again, is exactly what I see in far left politics in 2017 in the United States, which is an aversion to as what you were describing as socialism for regular people. It's an aversion to really taking seriously people's common sense around basic issues and and, and an aversion to taking seriously what it would mean to mobilize and do politics out there rather than in the places that we already are in. Right. So I see the piece as actually united in its criticism of both what reformist social democracy became and what it was and 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 the far left. So it's odd to me to read a criticism that says that we are nothing more than reformists. I think if I were to characterize if I were to characterize our position and I don't think I'm I don't think I'm wrong in speaking for Connor here too is that it's something like non-reformist reformism. The idea is that our task in this society is to win the very many reforms that are everyone's right in this society. I mean, this is the wealthiest society, at least speaking about the U.S., this is the wealthiest society that world history has ever known. And there's no excuse for people's needless suffering all around us that we see. But what we need to do is we need to, we will, only, I think 
what we need to do needs to be rooted in the understanding that we're only going to win that better society through struggle and through mobilization, through class struggle, whatever else, not through appealing to, you know, elites or not through meeting with 10 people in a room about it to talk about the Russian revolution. Both of those poles are united by their same distaste for mass action. And that's really what we need to do. That's really what left left wing politics is about. So I see, I see those detractors as having much and much more in common with reformism than we have. I've recently noted, uh, and this is to take your uh, very reasonable argument to a bit of an extreme, so I don't want these two to be uh, conflated because what I'm about to say is a little bit more of an extreme critique, uh, but, uh, but I'll go ahead with it. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I've seen more than a little bit of what, I w- what I've called uh, misanthropy. And in some of the kind of uh, arguments of the far left, which is which is to it's this kind of it's an elitism that, uh, you know, just sort of presumes that that people out there are irredeemable in a certain sense. And so that what the far left needs to do is 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 uh, bunker down in our little enclaves and purify the networks. Uh, you know, to, to wait for the time in which, you know, I don't know, uh, we, we could wage a pure revolution or whatever else. Um, and and what, what, what you and Connor advocate is something very different. And, and I think it's really important. And, and uh, it, it jives well with the message of Dead Punnett Society. So I'm, I'm glad you made it. Thanks. Thanks for, I mean, I, that, I was just thinking about the misanthropic features of far left politics and got depressed so i wasn't responding but yeah thanks thanks for saying that it's true but but uh as amber ali frost said you know very persuasively last week on the show you know there's more there's more of us than there are of them we have to believe that and we have to fight for a a political perspective uh, that, that will bring them out of the woodworks and give them the right kind of arguments to face down what are essentially kind of moral bribes i would say coming out of those corners of the far left i think that's true yeah and i i sometimes have my optimistic moments too i mean i i do believe that many people on the far left can be won over i mean many people of sort of the self-identified far left can be won over. i mean i was one of them 10 years ago i was one of them 12 years ago whatever it was I was one of them, and I I think I would have reacted with scorn and vitriol if I had read this essay that I wrote, if I had read it as a 20-year-old. And so, you know, I, I really do believe that people 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 can be convinced. It's, it's just a matter of, I suppose it's just a matter of being very, very clear-eyed and consistent and, you know, waiting for people to see that... Far left. I mean, the, the the thing about far left politics, as you were saying, is that it's social. It's not political, and and so I think I expect that you know when people see that you're not winning anything, you're not really changing the world. It's not it's not going to be enough to sustain a political identity. It it just can't be. I mean, you you, you can't win with you can't win with that orientation. Yeah, there have been many disaffected uh, former campus radicals, for example, uh, who who learn these hard lessons. They become disillusioned and they go get a job in, in the professional managerial class and they sort of like vote Democrat for the rest of their life, right? <laughs> Wishing there was something right. more uh, yeah, you know, that's, meaningful yeah. that they could do. And so our job is to to forge uh, – to, to, to provide that alternative – for people who come to these conclusions, because I, I would say, you know, pre, uh, I think previously there hasn't really there hasn't been one, certainly not in the last uh, 40 some. Yeah. Years. 
Right. So in, in many senses, uh, you know, Jacobin Magazine, Catalyst Journal, uh, certainly Dead Pundit Society and, and many, many other outlets and venues and individuals are have been involved in this project and trying to catch people who would have otherwise fallen out of this very internally driven uh, far left culture. And so uh, I really enjoyed the piece. Folks, go check it out on, uh, you know, Jacobin.com. It's called The New Communists. I don't know if it's still, is it still behind a paywall? Do you know? I think it came out behind a paywall, but then actually when I tried to look at it today, it seemed to be paywall beginning. So I'm not sure. I think it's back behind yeah, a paywall. Weird. So I may have to talk to Baskar to see if, if, see if we yeah. can't get that <laughs> taken down from the paywall. If not, you should subscribe to Jacobin Magazine, folks. Uh, don't listen to all the bullshit that circulates out there on the Twitter sphere about Jacobin. It is one of the leading outlets, I think, in producing, uh, you know, historical historical context and a strategic lead from many different angles. So go out and check that piece out. So really quickly, we're going to delve into uh, your piece, uh, Adner, called Did Liberals Give Us Mass Incarceration on the B Side? But we've already kind of hinted to the relationship between what we've been talking about here today and the argument you make in that Catalyst piece. So give us a quick little teaser of your argument there in that catalyst piece. And, uh, and then for my patrons, we'll take it on over to the B side and folks, if you haven't subscribed yet, it'd be a great time to do it. Cause I think this is a really, uh, a crucial argument. Sure. So it's a review of these two recent books on mass incarceration, which make the argument that in contrary to conventional wisdom on mass incarceration, it wasn't just right-wing conservative elites that gave us the policies that became mass incarceration, but actually also liberals and also American liberalism at its most social democratic moment. And what I argue in the piece is that these authors are actually right to say that it wasn't just conservatives who gave us mass incarceration. I think it's always been way too easy to lay the blame at the feet of individual elites and uh, as you know, this is this really so what we were saying earlier at the capitulation or racism of individual people who took the reins of the American state. I always think that 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 is a bad argument. And I agree with these books that I'm reviewing. But what they propose to replace that argument with is in many ways worse. And so I, in the piece, I try and show that they get the history of American liberalism and the history of mass incarceration pretty wrong, pretty dead wrong. <laughs> Right, right. It's a lot of really important stuff there. We're talking about the intersection of a lot of different debates and a lot of different key topics. And your your review piece brings them together in a way that a lot of my longtime listeners will be familiar with. Uh, We're we're talking about uh, the way that that scholars and folks, activists on the left, find racism in every discussion of black criminality. Uh, It's not to say that racism doesn't exist. It's not to say that it's not a problem. It's a tremendous problem, but it's a it's a it's a theoretical and historical shortcut to a far more complex issue. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's one of the key themes of my show. And so I'm really excited to talk about this, uh, and, and some of the conclusions that you draw. So Adner, we'll take it over to the B side patrons. Look out for that episode in a couple of days. And, uh, thanks so much for talking to my audience. I, I learned a lot and, uh, cool. Thanks for having me. I had a lot of fun. <laughs> And that's our show. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks again to Adana Usmani. I think I butchered his name a couple of times during the interview, so apologies for that. Adana's a really bright guy. You should check out his writing wherever you can find it. I'm going to link to as much of it as I can in the show notes. 
As I mentioned in the intro, there's going to be a B-side to this episode, so patrons, look out for that in the next few days. I'll have that by the end of this coming weekend. And if you're not a patron, you're really missing out. Support the New Left Agenda. Um, I try to cut the pitch uh, to a minimum during this show because I know that that whole sales pitch is really annoying. Uh, I listen to podcasts and I hate it too. But listen, you know, you're know, you not going to get this perspective uh, from the mainstream. You're not going to get it from liberal and progressive outlets. Support independent podcasts. I am a patron of many independent podcasts, as many as I can afford. And uh, so I, I need your support. I ask for your support, and I appreciate those who have given it. So go on over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe at $5 or more per month and get access to to the B-side with Adana Usmani this week. It's really good. We're talking about mass incarceration and the history of capitalism and neoliberalism. It's good stuff, folks. So, yeah, look out for that B-side. And then, uh, you know, it's just me. I'm the dead pundit. You know where to find me. I'll be here next week. You all take it easy and uh, enjoy your week. Dead pundit, out. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother...